Good. Well, uh, if you're just visiting with us, really glad that you're here. Uh, this is uh, very simply just a worship service where we love to worship and proclaim and exalt uh, one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus, who is God's Son, who came and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that was necessary for us to gift us righteousness and pay the debt for our sin. He rose again and gifts his Holy Spirit to those who would lean and trust in him. And so uh, that's why we're thrilled about that reality. That's why we're excited that, that we celebrate that and sing about that and pray pray about that and confess about that, that truth. And so um, if you were here last week, we um, normally just walk through books of the Bible. We actually last week just kind of walked us through the whole Bible in short, just giving us a good picture of why God made all things and why we exist and so that we could again remember as we're here this morning in a new place, uh, nothing, none of that has changed, right? He's still the same God on the same throne with his same people to do the same thing, which is worship his name. And so we're going to jump back into the gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time, actually a little bit over a year. So um, if this is your first time here and you're like, uh, you, get, you know nothing about Luke, um, the first thing you should do is just go online and listen to the last year's worth of sermons uh, to catch you up to here. And if you don't want to do that, let me just give you a, a run through of what's happening here. Um, uh, Luke is this writer. There are four Gospels in the Bible and there are uh, four different writers that are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write all that God wanted us to know about the life and teachings of Jesus. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're in Luke's gospel. He was a physician. He walked with the Apostle Paul. He um, was a, a guy that really wanted to understand more fully uh, why the life and teachings of Jesus could not just be historical and factual, but transformative in your life. And so he actually writes to this guy, Theophilus. At the beginning of the letter, you'll see it. Uh, he's likely a Roman official who was skeptical of the things of Jesus and the life and teachings of Jesus. So he, he writes him to do this, to lay before Theophilus why the life and teachings of Jesus aren't just true, but they transform you. So I want us to constantly remember the reason we're in this book, the reason we love the Holy Scriptures isn't because it just gives us a bunch of cute information. We love it because it transforms us. It literally gives us information that is the Holy Spirit of God illuminates our minds to what's being said. It infuses our hearts. It gives us affections for the God that made us. And so that's why we love walking through books of the Bible to see all that God has wanted to teach us. So here in Luke, Jesus has been teaching, he's been healing, he's been going about, he's been sitting, he's been eating, he's been casting out demons, he's been going throughout his ministry. What you're going to see here in Luke chapter 11 is he's now on his way to the cross, he's on his way to where he will ultimately die and ransom through his broken body and his shed blood all of those to himself who he will call and you'll see this kind of shift happen in Jesus's ministry where it's kind of like all the teaching is sufficient, all the works are sufficient. He's, he's done everything he needs to do. Now it's you need to respond to Jesus. It's, it's your job now to say, is he God or is he just a moral teacher or is he just a good guy or was he just a historical figure or is he really the incarnate son of God who takes away the sins of the world? And that's what Luke is going to lay before us here in Luke chapter 11. And so what's been happening is this question keeps coming up as Jesus is teaching, as he's healing, as he's comforting, as he's delivering, as he's eating, as he's speaking. The question that keeps repeating in this gospel is this. What will you do with Jesus? That's really what's going to keep coming up. It comes up from the religious elite. It comes up from the broken. It comes up from all different types of people across all spectrums. What are you going to do when you are face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ? 
And so you can't land in this weird place of he was just a good teacher because he claimed to be God. So he was either God or not. So if he is God, which he was, that makes him a loony. He should be in the psych ward. He shouldn't be labeled a good teacher. So, so you have to do all these things with Jesus as you look at his life and teaching. So here by the time you get to chapter 11, um, we're months away from Jesus' death. So there's been over two years of ministry by the time you hit chapter 11 in the gospel according to Luke. And he, there, everything is sufficient. He's given everything people need to know to believe that he is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. All the evidence is in. Now it's a time to look at the response. And here's why this is important. Because you and I live in a culture and society where um, of all the hundreds of thousands of ideologies and philosophies and religions that, that exist, we kind of make this Trump statement that you can't know anything that's really wholly true. Right? There can't really be an absolute truth because everybody kind of has their thing. We're entitled to all of our different opinions. And so what, what Jesus does really throughout his life and teachings, which I love, and the scriptures really too, is it's actually really simple. You can actually just cut human history and all peoples of all times, of all tribes everywhere in the middle and put them in one of two categories. Okay? And, and Jesus is going to roll that out here. You either belong to the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of Jesus, or you belong to the kingdom of darkness, which is the kingdom ruled by Satan. That's really, if you just want to divide everybody into two belief systems, that's where you land, right? So it's a lot more simple than coming up with these hundreds of different thoughts. Jesus makes it crystal clear, and he dispels this myth of neutrality, right? That you can kind of live in the middle on the fence, and kind of it doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus. If you just kind of believe he's a good guy, everybody's kind of included. There needs to be no real allegiance or no real dedication, no real, you know, leaning on him or trusting on him. Jesus is going to show the exact opposite, that when he becomes your savior, he becomes your king, and he becomes your allegiance. So let's jump into Luke chapter 11, where Jesus is going to do this. He's going to show that there are those who love Jesus, are with Jesus, are united with Jesus, adopted by Jesus, and those who are not. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're not in the kingdom of light, we pray that happens. <laughs> we pray that God graciously shows you the beauty that is the person and work of Jesus, and that you are adopted into his family. So let's, let's start at verse 14. Here's what Jesus says. Here's what Luke writes about Jesus. Now he, this is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Okay, so Jesus is doing something that he always used to do, okay? He's delivering people from the kingdom of darkness. So th this is nothing new to Luke's gospel. This is nothing new to the life of Jesus. He is constantly delivering, freeing, cleansing people from those who have demonic assault. This is, this is part of his ministry. This is normal in Jesus. So in this particular case, this demonic possession, this, this, it's caused this man to be mute. He can't speak. And Jesus delivers him easily through his divine authority. And the people marvel. They're astonished. This is all part of what happens. People can't believe they've seen such power, right? This is regular in the life and teachings of Jesus. And, and here's what you're going to see here, though, is if you read the Gospels and you read particularly Acts, you go to Acts 19, there's an amazing section of Scripture there that, that kind of explains this, is people never deny the miracle, what they always deny is the source of it. 
Okay, you, you track with that. You, you have to follow that because nobody ever denies that they saw people raised back to life. No one ever denies they saw the lame walk, they saw the blind see, they saw the deaf hear. Nobody doesn't acknowledge that. What they kind of go back and forth on is the type of power it came from. And so what happened was, if, if you actually watched the this, this, this storyline, is that these religious leaders hated that Jesus was calling them out on their self-righteous religion because you have nothing intrinsically in you to make you righteous. You need Jesus. So they didn't like that all their merits and all the behavior didn't make them in the kingdom of God. So they started kind of forming this understanding that, well, he must be doing these things possessed by demons, like Satan must be doing this because everybody knew there were two ultimate powers in the universe, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And everybody knew that the kingdom of God was more powerful than the kingdom of Satan. So if he's not God, if he's not doing it from the kingdom of God, well, what's their other option? Well, he must be doing it by demon possession. He must be doing it in the name of Satan. And so this is, this is what you're, you're seeing here in this. That's what's happening on this particular occasion. Since people couldn't deny them, they'll deny that the source of the miracle was divine. That's what you're seeing right here. Well, he can't be doing it from the power of God. So it must be done by Beelzebul, which was another name for Satan. We'll get into that in a minute. And that must be what's happening. Now, you would think this text would read, the dude was healed and they were floored and they rejoiced, right? I mean, can you imagine if, if, if you were made mute by demon possession and, and Jesus Christ healed you and then everybody standing around you was like, mm, I don't know, man, I think it was satanic, right? I mean, are, you, feel, are you, you understanding that? Like, you would think the normal reaction, that's why you have to see the hardness of the human heart. You have to see the spiritual blindness in this life of Jesus Christ. I mean, the people are witnessing the power of God and they're still attributing it to Satan, Instead of rejoicing, instead of proclaiming the excellencies of the divine power that they saw. And so here's what is staggering. What they're basically saying is he's not from heaven, he's from hell. He's not a truth teller, he's a liar. He's not holy, he's wicked. Amazing what they're attributing to Satan. He's not the source of life, he's the source of death they're actually saying about Jesus. And so this is why, as you continue to see through the Gospels, what do people say? If you read stories in the Gospels, they'll constantly say, oh, he must be doing that with the help of a demon. Oh, a demon helped him. You'll see that from people because what happened was this religious understanding that it was all done in the name of Satan was trickling down into people, so they were all buying the lie. And they don't really want a sign. Some of you guys are reading that going, oh, they wanted a sign. They don't really want a sign. They're taunting Jesus like they did on the cross, right? What happens when he goes to the cross? Everybody's like, hey, hey, why don't you bring all your holy angels and come down from there if you're really the Christ, right? It's mockery. It's not that they actually want another sign. They've seen hundreds of signs. And they knew what he did was supernatural, but they can't acknowledge it was done in the power of God. And so they say he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, he, here's what we got to understand about this. Um, Beelzebul is basically, this prince of demons language was taken back to where the Jewish people kind of put this twist on this old Canaanite god, this god named Baal, and he was kind of the, the, the lord of most high, and they, they hated this wickedness, so the Jewish people kind of wanted to make a mockery out of this god, and so they would call him the prince of demons, which was like lord of the flies, which was like basically lord of the manure. It was like calling him just despicable, just 
utter mockery to these pagan gods that they didn't think had any authority over their god, right, the Jewish god. And so um, what's amazing is they're attributing the most vile name, the most vile word they can think of to the very holy son of God himself. Amazing. Amazing the, the choice of words they use. So they're calling the highest and holiest the lowest and most evil. They are calling perfect holiness wickedness. They are calling incarnate truth a liar. And this is what self-righteousness does, friends, right? When you start building up your tower of all the things that you love to do and you sit in your high and mighty tower and you look over everyone else, you are blind to what is true, you are blind to compassion, you become bitter in your indifference and you chastise and critique everybody around you and look down on them and then you say silly things. You're calling the incarnate Jesus a liar and wicked and vile and not holy? That's insanity. Yet they're blinded to their self-righteousness. Amazing how Jesus responds here. You got to see verse 17. Just his response here is an act of mercy. And what he says, look at what he says, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, Jesus always does this, love it. Because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows all things. He perceives their thoughts and he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. <laughs> it should have read, in knowing and discerning their thoughts, he lit them up. Right? I mean, do you, do you remember this? Listen, this... this this blasphemy is so profound, he could have incinerated them. I mean, remember back in the Samaritan village, those of you guys that were with us back in chapter 9, I think it was, when, when they went up to the Samaritan village to make a place for Jesus, they wouldn't have him. They're like, man, can you call down fire from heaven to burn up these people? And Jesus is like, hold on. I came to seek and save. He had compassion on them. Okay, you're seeing this again in Jesus. He had every right to just incinerate them in the utter blasphemy, yet he shows mercy. He shows unbridled mercy. He doesn't consume them. He reasons with them. It's staggering that Jesus does this here. And he points out the ridiculousness of their statements. I love this. If, if This is really how I came to know Jesus. I, you just need to read Jesus. Like you just need to read the way that he talks to people and dialogues with people. So, so here he's, he's reasoning with them, he's talking with them, and look at what he, he says. He points out how absurd they are. He goes, hold on a second. This doesn't make any sense. Like your logic is just insanity. If, if I'm doing this in the name of Satan and I'm casting out Satan's very agents, why would I do that? Satan can't survive. Why would Satan cast out the very thing he's trying to possess? A house divided against itself couldn't stand. That, that makes no sense to you. Your logic is mixed up here. You're not making any rational sense here as you're, as you're saying this. How can my casting out of Satan be done by Satan? If you look back at the life and ministry of Jesus, you know, one of the main features of the Gospels is him casting out and delivering people from this kingdom of darkness. And here's what's even crazier. What did we read last week in Genesis 
Everybody knew Genesis 3.15, these Jewish people that knew their Torah, that knew their Old Testament law, they all knew that the Messianic king would come and he would have the ability to crush the head of Satan. And here comes the one who's going to crush the head of Satan and they're saying that he is the head of Satan. Makes no logical, rational sense. And then Jesus says this to help you understand this. He says, here in verse 17, he says, if I'm casting these things out, if this is done by Satan and its power you've never seen before, who do you think your Jewish exorcists do it in the name of God but don't compare to my divine power? What, what he's talking about here is there were these Jewish exorcists that would go out just to scam people and do healings to get money. You see that a lot today actually with, with false teachers, right? They'll just heal masses. No one ever really gets healed and they'll get tons of money. So this is the same thing. It's always happened in history past. It's still happening into history future. People will do all these nutty things, amazing, crazy things, not in their divine power, but to scam people. And, and so throughout you go, again, to Acts 19, you can read this where people always though knew that couldn't compare to the power of God because Jesus' power was divine. The apostles' power was divine their power was not divine and so he's basically saying guys you've seen power you know that the power of myself doesn't compare to even the power of your Jewish exorcist so if your Jewish exorcists are doing it in the name of God what does that say about me because you know that the kingdom of God is more power than the kingdom of darkness are you following that I know that was that was a lot right it's just process of elimination there, there's this I want you to see this because in verse 20, there's a connection back to Exodus 8 that I think really helps us understand and see the, the beauty of what, what's happening here. Because Jesus is calling out these phony exorcisms that are happening. In verse 20, it says this, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. <laughs> in other words... <laughs> If I am doing this, if I have just made this mute man speak through my divine authority and power, then what that means is the kingdom of God is here because the king is present, because God's kingdom is present wherever the king of that kingdom is present. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 8, it's not on the screen. You just, a lot of you guys, if you have a church background, you know about the plagues, right? Right, uh, Moses is going in there and he has all those plagues and where he helps deliver the people of God. And what happens in Exodus chapter 8 is you actually see this phrase. And what happens is Moses goes in there, he does the, the plague of the gnats. You remember that? He throws his stick down or his staff down and gnats just consume everything. And what happens, right? All of these, you know, magician, you know, pharaoh guys, these Egyptian uh, magic men try to come in. They got their little stick, their little toy tricks, and they throw it down. It just turns into a snake, right? And they all say, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, our power doesn't compare to what Moses is doing. This is so far beyond us. And they say, the finger of God is here. What are they, what are they acknowledging? That, that, that the power you do this, Moses, is divine. It's, it's a different source than ours. And Jesus here uses the same language and says, hey, you guys all know Exodus 8. You guys are all smart in your Torah literature. You guys have all been taught this in the synagogue, right? The finger of God is present now, just like the finger of God was present when Moses went in to deliver his people. You know this power is beyond you. You know this is a divine thing that you're seeing, and it's not satanic. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
He's basically comparing these phony magicians, phony Jewish exorcists, just like the phony Egyptian magicians. You guys are in the same camp. And he's the greater Moses who comes in and does more profound things with more profound power because he is the very son of God. This is why, friends, you can take any person from any religious group from eternity past to eternity future and line them up with the person of Jesus and they'll never compare to him. Ever. You can take every false teacher that's alive today, every teacher of any religious system of any kind and line them up next to the risen Son of God who is Jesus Christ and they'll never compare. Like, they'll never be in the same category. I mean, Jesus stands alone outside of all other groups and sects. I mean, he is utterly by himself. And so here you see what Jesus did in the world as he lived, as he walked, as he healed, as he taught, could only be explained by the finger of God. Every single time he would do something, every time you experience the Holy Spirit of God in your life, you know it can't be explained by a belief system or religiosity or anything else other than the divine Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, empowering you, emboldening you, convicting you, giving you eyes to see the beauty that is Jesus. When no one wanted it, he did it for you. And so we all are transformed lives and evidences of his grace in that way for those of us who are Christians. And so he's saying the finger of God not only is laid upon the believer, the finger of God is here to display and show only Jesus Christ can deliver from spiritual depravity and spiritual captivity. It's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to look at Jesus' life. It's staggering to see his person and work. It's all about a kingdom. And he's come to establish his kingdom. So here Jesus will next give an invitation and he'll do it using an illustration. And this is another act of mercy. (laughs) He's showing the door hasn't been slammed shut. You can still repent. You can still turn to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus gives an invitation with an illustration. Everyone right now, whether you believe it or not, want to believe it or not, want to suppress it or not, are in the middle of a battlefield. You are in the middle of a war, and it is the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. You you men who like to be strong, like to be proud, let's say you lock up your home, you protect your home, you make sure everything's in order, and you've got, you know, guns, you've got machines, you've got everything else to protect your family and all that you love, right, all in your family, and one day you look out your window and see one coming that you have no ability to defend against because you need someone bigger than you. You've come to the end of your ability, the end of what you can do, and you say, I can't thwart this. And it is Satan, it is his demons, it's his agents, and Jesus Christ is the only one who can step in and defend you from that. He's the only one who can overpower the demonic assault of the kingdom of darkness. So he shows this amazing analogy here where you're kind of in this battle and you realize, and this is common sense, right? When a strong man who's fully armed can be fully defended, only a person stronger than him will take him over. And what he's showing here is Satan and demons, spiritual agents, they've observed mannerisms and behavior since our first parents, Adam and Eve. They know how you think, they know how you act, they know temptations, they know inclinations. And you can't defeat 
Satan and sin and death by your morality. You can't defeat Satan's sin and death by your neutrality. You can't defeat Satan's sin and death by your religiosity, by your merits. You can't even defeat Satan by your religion. That's why religion apart from Jesus is demonic. It's just a form of spirituality. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why we're all about Jesus. That's why we're all about his kingdom and his kingdom advancing and him delivering. And so what you realize in this moment, Jesus is showing is you need someone to free you. You need someone to deliver you. You need someone to rescue you from the bondage you're in that you cannot defend against. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus comes and Jesus dies. Jesus lives. Jesus rises to deliver you from the onslaught of the kingdom of darkness that you are enslaved to prior to becoming a Christian. Right? You're only a part of one of two kingdoms. And Jesus graciously, powerfully comes in. It is that one man who is stronger. And guess what? He doesn't need an army. He does it all by himself. And he goes to the cross and says, not only does he free you, he makes a public shaming, a public spectacle of the demonic in Colossians 1. He puts them to open shame. He shows how there is really nothing, there is no power that they have apart from and next to Jesus Christ. I love this. Jesus is cutting through all the confusion of philosophies, ideologies, worldviews, human opinion to the beautiful news that only Jesus sets you free and Jesus can deliver and Jesus can defeat and that's great news. Let me show you in Colossians 1 a summary, I think, that sums up both these realities really beautifully. And Jesus is going to show, okay, and the Apostle Paul is going to show in Colossians, this one text shows you what's happening in Luke 11, which is Jesus is the only one who can defeat and disarm not only your spiritual depravity, your debt to sin that you can't pay, but also your spiritual captivity. Colossians 1.13 sums up both of these. And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, when you've been made alive in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, two things happen. The first Paul shows, which Jesus demonstrated over and over, is that he cancels your debt, your spiritual depraved heart that you have incurred since the moment of birth that you cannot repay to God, that you are in desperate need of a holiness outside of you because God's holiness required is one that you can't have and you can't earn, you can't obtain, you were never born with, you are all in original sin with bents and inclinations to worship what he's made and not worship him. So we all build up our resume and build up our world and build up our culture around us and we are our own God and we make everything look good and we worship ourselves 
ourselves. We talked about this last week. And Jesus comes and he sees the debt and he incurs the debt and he pays it in full. Now, here's what's not popular that Paul is saying here is basically all of us in this room, all of humanity are right now deserving of immediate death because all of us have belittled the name of God, have treaded his glory, have committed cosmic treason, have not wanted him, but we've just wanted his stuff. And so here he shows all of that debt that was storing up for us, divine wrath towards us in our sin. Jesus stands in our place, bears all of that, kills it in the grave, and then he sets you free. It's not that you paid any of your debt, right? You didn't wake up one morning and start paying off your mortgage. You woke up and your mortgage was paid in full, like the bank paid it off. Jesus, and it's this other silliness that happens. You know, I was bad, now I'm better. That's not what happened in your spiritual depraved heart being made new in Jesus. It's not I used to drink and sleep around, I don't drink as much, don't sleep around as much. No, you're a new creation. You're not a tweaked version of your old self. You are brand new, right? So, so being raised back to life, you have new thoughts, new desires, new sights, new everything. You see the world through a lens that you never saw it before because Jesus Christ has defeated and disarmed you from your spiritual depraved heart. That's number one, right? You know what number two is? And I don't think we think about this a lot. He delivered you from your spiritual captivity, not just your spiritual depravity. See, the other part of the gospel is that last sentence. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. I love that. He put them to open shame. He stripped them naked. Just laid them bare. They have no power, no authority above the person and work and authority of the God of all things. So now the demonic can just pester you. They can't rule you. Because the only way for Satan and his adversaries to get into you is through your sin, which Jesus killed in the cross. And he dwells you with his Holy Spirit, makes you his temple, which they have no access to. So now all they can do is tempt. Now all they can do is discourage and flick your ear and play with your hair, right? But they can't rule you. So we all have to realize that it moves from Thank you, Jesus, in deliverance of my spiritual depravity to Jesus, you're my allegiance in the deliverance of spiritual captivity because you're now removed, the scriptures say, from the kingdom of darkness and you're put in the kingdom of light. You have a new master, a new Lord who is good, who is kind, who shows grace, who protects, who leads perfectly. Right, that's why you're in two kingdoms. Both are called fathers. We have the good, right father, the God of all things, who made all things in the kingdom of light. Then Satan says, and Jesus says, and other people show that, not Satan doesn't say this, he can call himself that. Jesus does, that he's the father of lies. So you've got one kingdom that is leading you into life, leading you into deeper joy, leading you de- into deeper intellectual honesty and reason and joy and worship. The other one leads to just steal, kill, and destroy. And this is why... It's amazing what Jesus says here in light of understanding that. Look at what he says in verse 23. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Outside of another act of mercy, he reasons with them, he doesn't consume them, he doesn't incinerate them, he doesn't blow them up. He shows mercy, he shows kindness, he shows invitation again. Hey, if you're not with me, you realize that you are under the authority of another kingdom. 
there's only two places to land in human history. And as he shows this, here's what's amazing. Jesus is saying it's insanity, it's absurd to be against the very thing that can set you free and for the very thing that keeps enslaving you. Because all of these people watching Jesus deliver this demonic possession, that's what they're all saying. This is so profound. This is human history, right? This is... This is some of you guys in your conversion, right? You realize for the first time, hold on a second. (laughs) I'm not free. I'm not free in my sin. I'm not free in my enjoyment of pornography whenever I want, unbridled sex with lots of women and just making my own rules and making my own laws. I'm not free. I'm actually bound by that and that very thing, that sin which lies and deceives and perverts and distorts all the goodness of God, all of his good ways that want to lead you into unceasing, satisfying joy in him. He wants to steal. He wants to tempt. He wants to rob. He wants you to get eyes away from Jesus. He wants to point you off of Jesus so he doesn't want you to see the glory that is there, the joy that is there, the freedom that is there so you are actually for the very thing that keeps enslaving you will ultimately damn you, but you're against the very thing that will deliver you from those chains that are holding you down, that are, are only breakable by Jesus. And so this is the silliness that happens in the spiritual realm that Jesus is addressing. And Jesus comes and Jesus dies and Jesus rises so that we can be set free in its fullest sense from depravity and captivity. For some of you, this might be true. Just if you're totally honest with yourself, you believe that the life that you are living is going to lead to more fullness of joy than that one pursuing the God of the universe. And here's my question for you. If you're honest, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? I mean, that idol that you always place on the new mantle that gets replaced probably every two to three years, that's your God that you love to worship. Because understand, in the cosmic realities... Satan wants you to worship anything but Christ. He wants you to try to find joy, try to find freedom in anything but the risen Christ. So if you conclude that Jesus is not God, he's not Savior, he's not Lord, if that's you and you're like, well, I'm, I'm not really like accusatory, I'm not really on the, I'm on the fence about it, well, by default, you're saying that he's a liar and you're saying that he's with Satan. You're saying the same thing that these people are saying to Jesus who just delivered a man through the divine authority of God and you're saying with them, "Mm, you must be doing that with some demonic influence. You can't land there. You either are one of his or you're not. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're not. And I know this isn't popular. but, but, But truth isn't to be made available because it's popular. Truth is to be made available because it's freeing and it's life-giving and because it's true.
This is the beauty that is Jesus. He sets us free. Some of us this morning, we're sitting in our seats going, Jesus has set me free. I've lost track of the beauty that is in the divine work of God in Christ in delivering me not only from my sin, but from the onslaught of the kingdom of darkness that you were hogtied to your entire life till he ripped you out and put you in a new kingdom with a great dad and a perfect family. Not because we're perfect, but because the one who makes it is. And so as we stumble and fall about our way, as we're one big, goofy, beautiful mess, Jesus alone sanctifies, moves out the rough edges until glory, because we're in the already not yet phase, where we will be there, we're being sanctified, we're being made more in the image of Jesus, and one day we will fully be like him because we shall see him as he is. Won't that be a great day? For those of you that that are not Christians, that this is still new to, We just want you to know that these are the two places you land and that Jesus is good, that Jesus' invitation is to you, that he rolls that out for you, that you can find freedom in him, not just from your depravity where you belittled his name and wanted to worship yourself over him, but the captivity that you are in right now in the kingdom that is the kingdom of darkness. And we pray that God would free you from that. And that's why we're going to take the Lord's Supper Because this is a gift Jesus gave to remember this reality. And that's why we want to do this when we gather as Christians because we are remembering the precious and prized reality that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin and the disarming of the spiritual powers that had influence and had authority and had captivity over our lives. And we take this seriously. We take it in joy. We take it as an act of worship. This time is for prayer, for examination, for confession, for looking at yourself. There are things you need to repent of, things you need to confess to God in thankfulness and gratitude and fear. And then we come to the table and we take. And if you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take because this is for Christians, those that know Jesus, those have leaned in him for forgiveness of sin alone. They don't depend on merits. They don't depend on church. They don't depend on acts. They don't depend on anything but his broken body and shed blood alone. And I want you to know, listen, if you're new to this and you get familiar with this, this is not something that gives you righteousness. This does not give you any sort of favor with God. It is a divine gift from him that we enjoy and celebrate. So, Let's have a time of prayer, of confession, and then you're welcome to come to the table. We have three in the front. You can come down the aisles and take as you want. And we're going to thank Jesus for this reality that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and led us into glorious light. And then we're going to sing and worship and celebrate. God, thank you that you are a good, kind, gracious God, that you deliver not through some demonic possession but through divine authority. God, even in the quiet right now, would you calm hearts? Would you settle hearts? Would you awaken hearts? Father, may you protect us from spiritual blindness. May you protect us from spiritual agents that are not angelic beings but fallen angels who are part of Satan's world. May we not be naive to that but not give them too much power in our thoughts. God, would you give us joy this morning in what you've done in our lives? Father, would you encourage and call and woo people to yourself who do not know you? God, may you even bring some to repentance and faith this morning who are not yours and make them yours. Might they cry out to you and plead with you and repent as they see your gracious invitation that still stands because you have not come back yet. Might they turn to you and see the freedom that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.